Well, howdy. And uh, Gigum, weird weekend, right? A&M, uh, A&M won a big game, and uh, the Longhorns lost a big game. So that's like the best of both worlds for, uh, for me. Uh, and so as it was a weird weekend, it's a weird text. And so raise your hand if you've ever heard this text preached before. Okay, some of you, not a lot. Okay, well, it's a, a bit of a weird text, and so as we, uh, as we get uh, into the Spirit, I want to tell you a little bit of a story. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As we just read, we'll be in uh, verses 4 through 16, but I'll tell you a little story about my first time uh, to Israel. Uh, first time uh, to Israel, this was before people had uh, you know, smartphones and all of those sorts of things with apps on them. And so I was with some friends, and we were walking through uh, Jerusalem, and we were trying uh, we'd seen most of the major sites and so forth. We were trying to make it to the Wailing Wall. What's the Wailing Wall? The Wailing Wall is uh, kind of the only remaining part of, uh, of Herod's uh, Temple Mount. And, uh, and so the actual temple that was there in Jesus' day, this is the only part of it. And so uh, if you remember uh, from church history in 70 AD, the Romans came in and they basically just destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. This is the only section that's still remaining. And so it's kind of the holiest section in, uh, in uh, Judaism. And so... We're trying to find it, but uh, we don't ask for directions uh, for some reason, and so uh, we decided we're just going to explore. We're going to explore the, the old city and, uh, and try to find it. Unfortunately, our exploration took us down this tunnel, and at the end of the tunnel, there were a group of Israeli soldiers, and they were not excited about our exploration, and they expressed that lack of excitement by pointing rifles at us. And yelling at us. And so we decided, let's just ask for directions. And, uh, and so we did that, finally make our way to the, uh, to the Wailing Wall. And whenever you get there, as a man, you get a welcome gift. Uh, they give you a little uh, paper hat, which in Hebrew is called a kippah, uh, which means covering. In Yiddish it's called, anybody know? A yarmulke, right? You might know that from the uh, Adam Sandler Hanukkah song. And, uh, and so you get this hat. And, uh, and so I'm wearing my hat. It's nice and stylish. And uh, we're getting our pictures taken there at the Wailing Wall. And then I decide I want to go up to the actual Wailing Wall. And, uh, and so the only problem is it's a madhouse. And there's people singing. There's people dancing. Again, this is the holiest site uh, in modern Judaism. And uh, so there's people singing. There's people dancing. There's rabbis that are, that are doing... Um, uh, bar mitzvahs there uh, for, for uh, young boys. Uh, there are even uh, a bunch of people there that are evangelists for various Jewish cults. Uh, and they're passing out literature. They're asking, are you Jewish? And if not, they'll just let you go. But if you are Jewish, they want to proselytize you uh, into Kabbalah or something like that, which is, I think, what Madonna practices. And, uh, and so anyway, uh, there, there's just madhouse. And so I decided, I don't want to go up there. And so I look over about 30 yards away, and there's this little fence about waist high. And, uh, and I notice on the other side of the fence, it's much less crazy. It is much more orderly. And so I just walk over there. And I make it all the way up to the front, uh, to the front of the wall. And I notice that I'm just surrounded by uh, women. And, uh, and so I think this is kind of a strange experience. And, uh, and then I notice that all of those women are staring at me with a look of confusion. So now I'm confused because I don't know why they're confused and, uh, and so why are they staring at me until this sweet old lady, uh, she pointed to a sign that said, this is the women's area. 
And so I just made my way to the uh, women's area, and so I defended everybody there. And so quickly I made my way back to the other side. I had no idea, to that, mo- uh, to that point, I had no idea that there were separate men's and women's sections to worship at the Wailing Wall. And why would I? I mean, I grew up as an American Christian, uh, and, uh, and so I grew up in this context, and with the exception of bathrooms, we don't have any other gender-specific spaces here in churches, all right? And so we don't have this, uh, you know, men's room and uh, women's room besides, again, bathrooms or uh, something like that. We don't, we don't separate the men and the women on the different sides. We don't have a balcony or anything uh, like that, and, uh, and so that's kind of my context that I've grown up in. That's not... The historic context, though, in fact, in most pagan religions and even in modern Judaism, there was a, a segregation by gender. In fact, the original temple uh, that was built, you had this outer area that was for Gentiles only. And then you had Jewish women could go into an, a, a section that's a little bit more centralized. And so that was the, the women's section. And then you had a men's section that was even uh, more centralized. And then obviously there's also the Holy of Holies and, and so forth that only the, the high priest could enter once a year. And so you had all of these sorts of levels. But in, uh, in the gospel, in Christ, you see that this wall has been broken down. The wall has been broken down between Jew and Gentile, but also the wall that distinguishes or that separates men from Women And so no longer is there this, uh, this opportunity uh, for uh, men to get somehow closer to Christ or closer to God or something like that. We all have equal access in one spirit uh, to God. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that all distinctions between men and women have been completely disregarded. There is still a distinction to be maintained in the gospel, in Christianity, between the genders. And that was historically designated, as we mentioned, that was historically designated by these distinct places for men and distinct places for women. But today in our text, we'll see that these uh, universal transcultural gender distinctions aren't designated by having these segregated places in churches, but rather by our distinct roles and the corresponding traditions and cultural symbols that we attach to those. So that's what our passage is about today. So let's pray. And then we'll dive in together. Just ask you first to pray for uh, yourself. Maybe you're upset about uh, the weekend. Maybe you're frustrated. Maybe you're distracted. Maybe you're tired. Maybe you're anxious about what this text says. And then next, would you pray a similar prayer? Whatever you prayed for yourself, would you pray that for those around you? Corporately, that we would hear and love and treasure God's word. And then lastly, would you pray for me? So Father, we're grateful for your word. Just confess that there are some uh, parts of it that are uh, difficult. Even, uh, even Peter says that about Paul's writings at times. And so I pray that you would help us uh, to be able to uh, understand it by your spirit and, uh, and by your spirit also to apply it to our lives and to, uh, to love it and to treasure it. And, uh, and so we're grateful for the opportunity this morning to gather together in worship uh, in submission to your word. And so pray that you'd bless us in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look at verses 4 and 5 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, 
But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So last week, we looked at uh, the beginning of uh, of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, and, and we talked about the principle of headship and how that relates to the concept of order. All right, so in the Godhead, for example, we read that God is the head of Christ. And we talked about the fact that that doesn't mean that the Son is somehow less than God, but rather it means that there is a Trinitarian order. That the Father is unbegotten, whereas the Son is begotten of the Father from eternity. And that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, also from eternity. So what distinguishes the members of the Trinity isn't that some members of the Trinity have some attributes and the other members of the Trinity have other attributes. Uh, What distinguishes the members of the Trinity aren't their attributes, but rather their relations of origin. There is no hierarchy, there's no, there's no hierarchy of authority within the Godhead. Each member is fully God, each member is therefore equally authoritative. But there is this order of relations. Again, the Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten of the Father from all uh, eternity, and then the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So we read that God is the head of Christ. And then that same language of headship was applied to the relationship between Christ and mankind. We read that Christ is the head of every man. Indeed, he's the the head of all humanity. He is Lord. There is a definite order. There's a hierarchy of authority there in that relationship. And then lastly, we saw that same concept of headship applied to the relationship between males and females. At least when it comes to marriage and to functions within the church, uh, there is this idea of headship and thus authority that resides in men. That men are called to uh, lead their homes and to lead in the context of the church. And that's by God's good design. So that was all last week. This week we'll see Paul pick up this same language of headship. But then he changes the usage from this figurative meaning to a literal physical meaning. Given, Given the fact that men are the figurative heads of their wives and of the church, women should therefore cover their physical heads. That's the point that Paul is going to make. In other words, physical head coverings are an expression of figurative headship. Physical head coverings are an expression of figurative headship. Now, these two verses are pretty straightforward, at least on the surface. Men within the context of the church shouldn't cover their physical heads, but women should. That's the command, and it seems pretty simple, but As we dive down deeper, you'll see it's not that simple because where it gets much more difficult is when we try to figure out why the command is given and in what way this command is still binding upon us today. Now, typically, whenever we're walking through a passage, whenever we're preaching here and walking through a passage of Scripture, we typically talk about its original application, its original meaning, before we bring it into its modern application and address all of those sorts of questions. However... Due to the nature of this particular passage and the number of questions that it raises, I thought it might be uh, more helpful to kind of summarize the modern positions, the modern interpretations on the front end of the text rather than waiting until the very end. So let me mention, there are two possible ways to interpret and apply this. All right, there's a, a number of other ways to interpret it. You can interpret it by saying it's just irrelevant and archaic. That's not a Christian option. There are two Christian options uh, to, uh, to uh, apply and interpret this. Both of them are attempting to rightly interpret the passage. 
both of them are seeking to faithfully apply the passage. But as we'll see, they do so in, in, in uh, dramatically different ways. Both approaches also say that there is a command here. There's something you should do with this text. Both of them also say that what is commanded is transcultural. It is mandatory. It's not irrelevant. It's not archaic. But again, they're going to differ, and they're going to differ in regards to the underlying rationale of the passage, what they think Paul's main point is, and therefore what is actually commanded today. So let me give you those two options. The first one is to say that a physical head covering is obligatory today. At least any time a woman is praying or prophesying publicly within the church gathering. Notice this isn't saying that a woman must always wear one, uh, like in certain forms of Islam. If you're going to go out in public, you have to have a head covering or something like that. It doesn't even say that she must wear one anytime she's in church. It explicitly says, it's talking about when, it's, when uh, someone is publicly praying or prophesying within the context of the local church. So that's the first interpretation, that Paul's concern is head coverings themselves... And so, head coverings are commanded today. And if you just read 1 Corinthians 11, that view seems most obvious. Historically, that was the uh, most traditional way of reading the text. But the second way of uh, viewing the text is more popular. It's more popular not only with your average churchgoer, but also most conservative pastors and theologians today. So what's the second way of reading it? The second way of interpreting this is to say it's not the head covering which is the binding application, but rather that which the head covering symbolizes. In particular, this second way of reading the text says that a physical head covering isn't commanded today, but what is commanded is the underlying principle which Paul talks about head coverings symbolizing. What do they symbolize? We'll get to that in a second. But just to summarize, according to the first view, head coverings are mandatory for women when they're praying or prophesying in the church, and that mandate applies to all times, all places, all churches, all cultures. The second view is that, that what is commanded is not necessarily head coverings themselves, but rather the symbolic meaning of head coverings. All right? We have some members who hold to the first view. I personally hold to the second view. Our members are welcome to hold either position without shame, without judgment. All right? This is not something to fight over. It's not something to divide over. In other words, women are welcome to wear a head covering if they so choose here at Parkway, but we don't require it. Now that might strike you as strange. Maybe it seems like a bit of a cop-out. If so, let me ask you this question. How many of you, when you came into Parkway this morning, how many of you received a physical kiss when you walked into the sanctuary? All right? Not many of you. All right? And yet the Bible clearly says that we are to greet one another with a holy kiss. It says that not just once or twice or three times, but four times that's actually commanded explicitly in Scripture. Not just by Paul, as if maybe he just has a weird kissing thing, but by Peter also. And yet none of us obeyed the command. Or did we obey the command? How many of you said hello to someone or were said hello to by someone when you came in? Show of hands. How many of you shook someone's hand or gave them a high five or a hug, or did that thing where you kind of nod, like, what's up, like that? Everybody, right? So in a sense, you could say everyone actually fulfilled this command. How so? Because the point of the command, when Paul writes to greet one another with a holy kiss, or Peter writes that, the point of the command isn't that we go around kissing one another. The point is that we greet one another. 
The holy kiss is just a cultural, a particular cultural application of this larger principle, which is what? That we welcome one another and that we do so warmly. That's the actual transcultural command. In some context, that's best accomplished by an actual kiss, especially if you're in Europe or something like that. But in other contexts, that's not the best application. A hug or a handshake or something like that might uh, suffice. In fact, I would say sometimes a kiss might have the opposite effect of the divine intent and the the meaning of Scripture. For example, if some stranger walks up to me and kisses me or kisses my wife on the lips, right? I don't feel loved. I don't feel honored. I don't feel welcomed. Right, I feel offended. I've told the story before. I was at, uh, I was in London uh, during Wimbledon 2013 when Andy Murray was the first uh, UK resident to win Wimbledon in like 70 something years, and this British guy kissed me on the mouth. I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> right? Sometimes a kiss actually has the opposite uh, effects. It, it doesn't mean what it used to mean, at least not in our context, not in our culture. So even though we don't obey the literal command of holy kisses, we still submit to the underlying principle that is symbolized by that particular cultural expression. That is, we are called to welcome one another and to do so lovingly. Or let me give you another example of this. Foot washing, right? Christ commands us to wash each each other's feet, and yet I've been over to many of your houses and not one of you has ever washed my feet. Why not? Because you know the point of that command isn't that we would wash one another's feet. The point of the command is that we would serve one another, that we would be humble. And we recognize that, uh, that uh, various traditions can express that in different ways. Those virtues change. The traditions that express the virtues of humility and service and selflessness and so forth, those, uh, those virtues change from culture to culture. In some cultures, that might be expressed by foot washing, but in others, that's perhaps not the best instantiation of the underlying principle. And I think the same is true when it comes to the topic of head coverings. I think head coverings are one particular cultural expression that symbolize something or some things, and that that which is symbolized is morally permanently binding, but that the cultural expression can change. So the thing symbolized is what's binding, but the symbol itself can change. So here's the million-dollar question. What is a head covering intended to symbolize? Well, there's actually a number of things that uh, if, you, uh, if you research this topic and you look at ancient culture, what ancient head coverings symbolized. The first of those was modesty. In many ancient cultures, it's kind of a weird thing for us. Each culture has their own unique nuances. But in many ancient cultures, hair was fetishized. It was sexualized in such a way so that it would be covered as a sign of modesty. Even today, We kind of use some sort of a residue of that language when we say that someone, quote, let her hair down. What does that typically mean? Is that typically seen as she was very modest and very submissive or something like that? No, it typically has the connotation of partying and so forth. And so we use that phrase. And so that's one thing, though, that head coverings historically symbolized was this idea of modesty. A second meaning, a second uh, thing that uh, head covering symbolized was that it was this designated distinction between the sexes. So head coverings not only symbolized modesty, but also the concept of femininity. And this is particularly striking when you think about it from our perspective today. Our culture today, 
where we tend to blur and downplay distinctions between men and women, or indeed in our culture today where we uh, tend to disregard the concept of gender uh, entirely. But biblically, there are two sexes and thus two genders. Those are interchangeable biblically. And they are distinguished for our good. God distinguishes men from women for our good. Thus men should act like men and women should act and dress like women. And head coverings are a way to symbolize that distinction. So you have modesty, you have femininity. Lastly, related to the above, head coverings also symbolized authority. It was a sign of submission within ancient culture to wear a head covering. We talked about this a bit last week. That though men and women are absolutely equal in essence and worth and dignity and value, there is nonetheless this principle of headship and authority that marks the relation between the genders. We see that especially in marriage, where a wife is called to submit to her husband, and then also in the church, where men are called to serve as elders, to exercise authority, to preach and teach, whereas those roles, those functions are prohibited for women in, uh, in Scripture. By the way, I think this is why Paul's concern for head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11 is uh, limited to when praying or prophesying. Again, notice in the text, he doesn't say that women must wear one anytime they come to church or something like that, only when praying or prophesying. Why? Because when someone is speaking publicly in the corporate gathering, there is at least the semblance that such a person is uh, teaching or exercising authority, which are the two functions that Paul prohibits for women in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. So I think that Paul's point is that praying and prophesying, they are acceptable activities for women within the context of the church. But given the uh, rampant potential for misunderstanding, he says that women should manifest that they're not doing so in a way that encourages insubordination or rebellion. And so head coverings are a way to show that submission to authority. Again, the reason, though, that Paul gives these boundaries between men and women, these restrictions, isn't because women are inferior It's not because women are less intelligent or they're less capable or anything like that, but rather because God has wired role distinctions into us, as we'll see in the following verses. So modesty, femininity, and authority are these sort of transcultural principles that are still commanded today. In some cultures, head coverings uh, symbolize those principles. In other cultures, there may be better contemporary expressions. Let's keep going. And we'll see why Paul commands them within the Corinthian context. Verse 6. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So to understand what Paul is getting at uh, here in verse 6, we need to know something about both Roman and Hebrew first century cultures. And that is the fact that for a woman to uh, to have short hair was seen as a sign of disgrace. It was seen as disgraceful. In fact, you can read some, uh, some ancient literature uh, and you'll uh, notice that when women were accused of adultery in many ancient cultures, part of the punishment would often include the fact that they would have to have their head shaven. It's kind of like this scarlet letter of infidelity or insubordination or something uh, like that. So because they have uh, sinned against their head, they've committed adultery, they've, they've sinned against their husband, uh, therefore their head 
is going to have this physical symbol of that. So Paul plays on that idea, that idea of this disgrace here by suggesting that a woman refusing to wear a head covering symbolizes the same thing as a woman shaving her head. And what does that symbolize? Well, again, in those cultures, it would symbolize the rejection of modesty, the rejection of femininity, and submission to authority. And as I don't think that the primary point of the previous verses was the universal binding mandate of head coverings today, but rather the idea of what they symbolize, so I don't think the point of this passage, verse 6, is that it is inherently improper for a woman to have short hair. I don't think that Paul actually means that short hair is inherently disgraceful for a woman in all times and places. I think he means that short hair symbolized shame in that culture and thus was not fitting. So I think the point is the same as in the, uh, the previous verse. That head coverings and hairstyles are not the underlying goal, but rather what they symbolize. And both symbolize modesty, femininity, and a submissive disposition to God-given authority. So I don't think the passage is saying that a woman can't necessarily have short hair but rather that the choice of hairstyle and the choice of dress and all of that should mirror these transcultural theological principles. We'll talk about that more shortly. Let's keep going. Verses 7 through 9. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. All right, if you were to just... Put that on your bumper sticker or something like that today. You'd get a lot of negative honks, all right? But this is where we begin to see the sort of theological rationale for the passage. He's going to make these three related points here. The first point is that man is the image and glory of God. Woman is the glory of man. What's that mean? We'll look at the, the, the next uh, two points. All right, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Think back to the story of creation. Think back to the book of, uh, of Genesis, right? God forms man. What raw material does he use to form man? He uses dust, right? And he breathes into it. And then later he forms woman. And what raw material does he use to form woman? The rib of the man, right? So woman comes from man in that sense. That's the second theological rationale for the principle of headship. Third, he says that man wasn't created for woman, but woman for man. Again, think back to Genesis, right? Woman doesn't even exist when man was created. So man couldn't have been created for woman. But when Eve was created, what's the language that's applied to her? It says it wasn't good for man to be alone. So God says that he will make, someone said it earlier, he will make a helper. That's the role, a helper of man. Eve is made for Adam, he's, uh, she is fashioned for him. That's where Paul gets this language of being made for man. What's the point of all this? The point of all this is that even though there is equality between the sexes, equality doesn't imply interchangeability or the denial or the disregard of this create, uh, created order. There's a view in many churches today, it's typically called uh, egalitarianism, which is the idea that because men and women are equal in value and worth and dignity, which they are. But because of that, egalitarians say, therefore, there should be no role distinctions. Women should uh, just be, be able to lead their homes just as much as, uh, as men. 
Women should be able to serve as elders, should be able to preach and teach in the church. This is a really popular view in evangelical churches today. It's also a really unbiblical view. All right? Egalitarians admit right, that they can't get around the fact that the Bible talks about role distinctions. But typically, that what they just say is they claim that those role distinctions all arise out of the fall. But notice the fact that that isn't Paul's argument. The rationale for the distinctions for Paul doesn't merely arise out of the fall. To be fair, there are passages where Paul will relate role distinctions to the fall, but that's not what he does here. All right? Here he isn't arguing that role distinctions arise from the fall, rather from creations. In other words, role distinctions between men and women don't derive because of sin, but rather because of God's design. In fact, it isn't gender-based distinction, which is the result of sin, but rather the rejection, the distortion of those role distinctions, which is the effect and evidence of sin. Let's keep going. Verse 10, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. This is by far the most difficult uh, verse in this entire passage for a couple of reasons. First, because the word symbol isn't in the original text. It literally just says that a woman should have authority on her head. Translators add the word symbol to help us understand the point. But even in doing so, it's still confusing because of what we tend to think of if we think of a symbol of authority on someone's head. Right? So think of the Queen of England. Close your eyes. Think of the Queen of England. What's on her head? A crown. All right? She has a crown on her head. That image is super confusing for us. Why? Because a, queen, uh, a queen's crown or a king's crown suggests what? Suggests that they have authority. Whereas in this entire passage, the idea is that one uh, wears this symbol not as a symbol of their own authority, but rather that they're under another's authority. And I think that's what Paul is meaning here. I think Paul uh, is using this idea the head covering isn't a symbol of a woman's inherent authority, but rather of her submission to the authority of another, either her husband or her father or the elders or a combination of the above. That's the first reason, though, that it's difficult because the, the lack of the word uh, symbol and some of the connotations that we think of when we think of a, a symbol of authority on someone's head. The second reason this verse is difficult is because look at the very end. Notice that phrase, because of the angels. Right? It, seemed, it just seems to come out of nowhere Paul says, a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Which is super confusing. All right, because there's a lot that Paul just kind of assumes his readers would know. For instance, in chapter 6, you might remember this. He asks, in the middle of a section about lawsuits among believers, he asks the questions, do you not know that we will judge the angels? To which most of us responded at the time, well, I do now. Wasn't something I knew before then. All right? Or the Apostle John in Revelation, we've made fun of this before, but the Apostle John in Revelation, he's talking about the uh, measurements, and he, ta- he mentions the fact that an angel's cubit is the same as a man's cubit, all right? which is helpful information for us if you're ever doing construction with an angel or something like that. All right? There are all of these weird casual references to angels in Scripture that, that seem completely out of left field, and this is one of them. So what does Paul mean by because of the angels? Well, if you were an early Corinthian, you were first century Corinthian, this probably would have made much more sense to you, all right? Maybe Paul, Paul had been there for 18 months. Maybe he taught a theological whipping class on angelology or something like that. But we have to speculate. 
because there's no context clues whatsoever, all right? Most scholars just think that he means that angels are interested in worship. That's part of the role of an angel in Scripture is to help us in worship, and thus they're interested in order. Both of those themes you see connected to angelology throughout Scripture. In fact, one of the criticisms of falling angel, uh, fallen angels, that is demons, is that they upended God's order. That's what the fall consists of. We've talked about this before. That the fall is the subversion of creation order. So think about the story. God, who is above all, he creates man. And then he gives him authority over his wife, over woman. And then he places them collectively over creation. And the fall is an inversion of that, a subversion of that. Satan is going to upend that by using a creature, a serpent, to deceive the woman, to entice her husband to sin against God. It's this exact reversal of the uh, created order. So that's a really big theme that's developed in Scripture. That might be what Paul is kind of alluding to here. That angels participate in worship and part of the way they do so is uh, by functioning as guardians of, uh, of God's created order. And part of that order is the idea of male headship and authority, which is symbolized by a woman covering her head. Verses 11 through 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man, man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So for the past 10 verses or so, Paul has been stressing this idea of male headship. And here he's going to offer this really helpful corrective because he knows human nature. In particular, he knows that we have a tendency to swing the pendulum. So for instance, maybe you read all of the above and you conclude that the Bible is advocating for female inferiority. That the Bible is advocating for misogyny. That the Bible is advocating for chauvinism. You think, well, if wives are to submit to their husbands and women can't lead in the church, I guess the Bible is supporting the subjugation and abuse of women. Well, in response, look at verses 11 through 12. Though Eve was created for and from man, she was also created in the image of God and for God. So here Paul is going to stress the idea that even though there is this order in male-female relationships, that order shouldn't be misapplied. As if man is inherently better than woman, or man doesn't need woman. That man is somehow self-sufficient. All right? Again, remember Genesis. Paul's familiar, assuming that we're familiar with the story. He's alluding to it all over the place in here. In the beginning, when God is speaking things into existence, he speaks something into existence, he looks around and he says, it's all good. Right? Trees are good. Rivers are good. Mountains are good. Dogs are Good. Cats, probably a result of the fall, right? But everything else is good until what? What's the first thing he says? That's not good. It's not not good for man to be alone. Why not? Well, the reason is because he's given a job. What is that job? He's given the job to, to subdue and cultivate the earth and to, can anybody tell me? To bear fruit and multiply. Right now, some of that To subdue uh, the earth and subjugate it and to bear fruit and multiply. Some of that I can do alone as a man, right? I'm capable of mowing the lawn. I'm capable of pulling up weeds or something without much direct spousal support. But when it comes to the other part of the mandate, when it comes to bearing fruit and multiplying, 
Again, contrary to what culture might suggest, I can't do that all alone. I need a lot of things that I don't have, like a womb, all right? So man needs woman if he's going to be obedient to that part of the original creation mandate. In other words, it's not good for man to be alone because he can't fulfill God's commands alone. Now we know from 1 Corinthians 7, as we've read, this doesn't mean that singleness is necessarily bad today. Uh, In fact, Paul says he prefers to be single for the sake of mission because today the command is not go uh, bear fruit and multiply physically so much as it is spiritually. That even if you don't have physical kids, you can still be obedient to that command by making disciples uh, and so forth. Even so, this idea that it's not good for man uh, to be alone still is relevant for us because it still suggests that isolation is destructive to mankind. We're made for community. We'll see that in depth when we get into chapter 12 and the imagery of, uh, of the church as a body with many uh, members. But back to Genesis, all right? Originally, there is this divine design of complementarity and inter- interdependence. Man needs woman and woman needs man. Which means, if you're following along, which means that headship and male authority doesn't imply the right to belittle and abuse women. Think about it like this. If God is absolutely ontologically superior to mankind, and yet he doesn't harshly lord his authority over us, how much less should man abuse his role, given that he is absolutely equal in worth, dignity, and value to women? He's simply distinct in his roles and responsibility. Or to use another example from the context, if Jesus is the Son of God, the eternal, uh, co-equal Son of God, and yet he submits to the Father, then the inference that submission implies inferiority is demonstrably incorrect. So don't let this passage ruffle your feathers as though Paul is uh, somehow advocating for demeaning chauvinism. That's the exact opposite of Paul's point. Paul's point here is that the glory of women consists in their expressing and enjoying what? Their femininity. Not rebelling against God's creation, but recognizing that God has created them as he is for their good and for their flourishing. In other words, and this is ironic, but ironically, this means that if anything, modern feminism is actually demeaning to women. What's the underlying premise of modern feminism? Anybody remember those Mia Hamm, Michael Jordan commercials in the 90s? Anything you can do, what? Anything you can do, I can do better. And behind that, you know, the, the, the catchy slogan, the presupposition there is really destructive, right? The philosophical presumption behind modern feminism is that a woman can only find beauty and worth and dignity, and value, and identity, and so forth, when she does what? When she casts aside these archaic notions of order, and when she casts aside role distinctions, when she indeed casts aside her femininity, and takes on the mantle of masculinity. In other words, feminism says that women are valuable when they rid themselves of their femininity. All right? This is why abortion is so closely tied uh, to modern uh, feminism. Biblically, the, I, the ability to nurture a child is kind of at the heart of femininity, but feminism must destroy that ideal and do, thus deny one of the most important distinctions of femininity. Remember what Paul has just said, man is born of woman. And in that, there is 
worth and value and so forth. But culture says only when a woman is free to act like a man is she truly free. In other words, again, modern feminism is sexist. It's demeaning. It's unbiblical. Let's keep going. Verses 13 through 15. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Last week, uh, we talked about fundamentalism in theological equipping class. One of the things that we, um, we mentioned is that one of the fruits of fundamentalism, uh, at least the, the mid-20th century fundamentalist movement, was there was this uh, imposition of this real stringent legalistic dress code. No bell-bottoms, right? That's a sign of, a, of rebellion. You can't have bell-bottoms. Right? Now, if you want to say no bell-bottoms for fashion reasons, that's okay. If you say no bell-bottoms for biblical reasons, that's kind of crazy. No, wire rim, no wire-rimmed glasses. No long hair for men, whatever it was. And that seems to be what Paul is saying here. In fact, it seems to say this is something that's rather obvious, that nature itself teaches that men shouldn't have long hair. But let me ask you this question. Is that actually obvious? Where do you see that in nature? It wasn't obvious to Samson, right? What was he known for? His strength and his hair, right? It wasn't obvious to the samurai. They had long hair, right? They're pretty masculine. To the Frankish kings of the Middle Ages, when we talked about the Holy Roman Empire uh, a, a few months back in theological quipping, I mentioned the story of 8th century Merovingian uh, kings, who so equated masculinity with long hair that whenever there was a rival to the throne, they would simply shave his head. He was therefore forever disqualified uh, from ruling. In fact, I told the story, one of their, their queens, Clotilda was her name. It's a great name if, you're, if you have a little girl, Clotilda. She was once faced with this decision. This is a true story. She was once faced with this decision of whether uh, her grandsons should either face the scissors or the sword. You can either be, you can choose, as their grandmother, you can choose whether they should be executed or humiliated by having their heads shaved. And she responded, it is better for me to see them dead rather than shorn. That's grandmother of the year right there, right? Now, who agrees with that sentiment today, all right? Any parents in here who would say, I would rather my kids die than get a haircut? You have, some of your kids might say, I'd rather die than get a haircut, all right? <laughs> No parent is going to say that, right? That's crazy, right? So my point isn't that this idea was actually admirable. My point is the idea that long hair is unnatural isn't necessarily something that every culture has recognized. So what does the Bible mean by saying that nature itself teaches that long hair is disgraceful for a man? Does this mean that it, sh it was shameful for Samson to have long hair? And if so, what do you do with the fact that God commanded it? Uh, for all Nazarites. And I don't think what it means is that it's inherently disgraceful for a man to have long hair. I think Paul's point is, again, that each culture has its own unique ways of expressing femininity and masculine, uh, masculinity. What is feminine in one culture might actually be, uh, what's feminine in one culture might actually be masculine in another culture and vice versa. But generally, there are pretty obvious distinctions. Right? Now, this doesn't mean that we give in to these silly caricatures that each culture comes up with, that men have to hunt, men have to chew tobacco, they have to spit, they have to grow a beard, whatever it is, that women have to sew, they have to knit, they have to be great cooks, they have to wear lots of makeup, again, whatever it is. But it does mean that there are certain things that are done 
or worn that are more or less associated with one gender than another. So, for example, it's totally appropriate to wear a kilt if you're a man in Scotland, but it would be inappropriate to wear a dress if you're a man here in America. Or another kind of strange example uh, from a strange place, uh, Japan. I read this uh, this past week, I didn't know this, um, that uh, on Valentine's Day, women traditionally buy men chocolate, right? It's actually the opposite of what we do here in America. If Casey, my wife, ever buys me chocolate for Valentine's, I would be not only super confused, I would also be super disappointed. But in Japan, that's the, that's the tradition. Women buy chocolate for men. So the different roles might change from culture to culture, but within that culture, you know what is appropriate for men and what is appropriate for women. So I don't think that Paul's point is that long hair is universally shameful for men. I think his point is that nature itself teaches the idea that men and women are different. And those differences play out in different ways in different cultures, but we should be sensitive to those distinctions rather than subversive to them. By the way, the word nature here, you might read that as if it's talking about creation. That's not what the word always means. The word often means kind of the regular established order of things. In other words, the established recognized order distinguishes men from women. Last thing I want to mention here, notice that reference to glory. That gets us uh, back to something I mentioned about feminism earlier. It's actually terribly demeaning to women. It says that feminine glory is found in suppressing femininity, at least as the Bible would describe it. But notice what the scriptures say. It's by embracing femininity and the corresponding cultural symbols of femininity that women are actually glorified. In other words, I don't think it's long hair that is inherently glorious, but rather that uh, women's glory consists in her being a woman by not trying to be something other than what God has made her because what God made her is good and beautiful in and of itself. The femininity isn't this socially constructed restraint. It's actually a God-designed means of flourishing. Let's keep going. Last verse. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. That word contentious there, I love it. In Greek, it's philonikos, uh, which means a lover of fighting. Anybody know anyone like that? Philonikos? Some of you might be that, but if so, Paul has strong words for you. He says, that doesn't work in the church. In other words, maybe you don't like this talk about headship and gender roles. Maybe that isn't your thing, right? Well, what's your option? This isn't just Paul's opinion. This is the only tradition of the church. This is the authoritative teaching of the church. So what do we do with it uh, today? Now, obviously, we've already talked about before. Some people apply this text literally by choosing to wear a head covering. You're free to do that. I'm not trying to convince you to do otherwise. That said, I don't think that that's the only application of the passage. Rather, I think there are other ways that we can apply the passage to kind of express these underlying concepts which head coverings originally symbolized. For example, when it comes to modesty, Let me just ask you the question, is that a factor in how you dress and how you act? Not only whenever you come to church, but especially when you come to church. Do you dress in such a way as to draw attention to yourself and to your attributes? Do you dress in a way that distracts others from worshiping? Again, I'm not interested in a particular formula That's how you get legalism, right? That it has to be a certain length that measure out the number of inches from your knees or whatever it might be. I'm not interested in a particular formula, but rather 
I hope that uh, you would see the beauty of modesty and that you would try to inculcate that in yourself and in your children and so forth. So the first thing is modesty. Is that a factor in how you dress and act? Second, as it relates to gender, do you dress and act in ways that correspond to cultural expectations for your sex? Again, not these various caricatures you might read out there, but general cultural conventions. If you're a man, do you dress and act like it? If you're a woman, do you dress and act like it? Or is that something you're trying to rebel against? You're trying to go against the grain for some reason there. Do you actually delight in the fact that God has made you, not as this sort of uh, amorphous, ambiguous human, but rather as a particular gender? That God has created you not as just a generic human, but God has created you as man, or God has created you as woman, and he didn't make a mistake in doing that. And then lastly, as it relates to submission and authority, as a woman, do you demonstrate that you are in glad submission to the authority that God has given to you? Your parents, your husband, the elders of a church, or whoever, is that evident in the way that you talk to others, in the way that you think, in the way that you pray, and so forth? Or is that a source of disappointment? And discontentment. And then as a man, do you delight in your authority that you've been given as a husband or whatever that might be? Or, is that a, or do you use that in a way to puff yourself up, to belittle others, to be, abuse others, whatever it might be? I want to end by commenting briefly on a related passage. It makes a lot of the same uh, underlying points as 1 Corinthians 11 in a slightly different way. Let's read uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Notice that Peter is also, as, he, uh, as Paul was, Peter's talking about clothing. And he's talking about hairstyle. And he's talking about jewelry. But his point isn't really clothing and hairstyle and jewelry. The point isn't really these external fashion things. Rather, his point is the internal disposition of the heart. The imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. He says, that's what's beautiful. That's your adornment. That's your glory. That's what's good. I think the same is true of 1 Corinthians 11. Paul's point isn't necessarily uh, that head coverings uh, and hairstyles are where you find your glory or whatever it might be, but rather the cultivation of a heart that gladly submits to God's creative order and a humble delight in the authority that God gives us for our flourishing. And then to look at this from the perspective of the gospel, calling back to last week, Christ is the head of man. Not only is he our Lord, but he is also our servant who laid down his life for his own. And that's what we celebrate in communion. So let's pray, and then we'll turn our attention to that. Father, again, I'm grateful for this text. I'm grateful for the way that it pushes against our culture in so many areas. Just even with the idea that there is such a construct or, or such a reality as uh, a sex or gender or whatever it might be. I'm grateful for the opportunity for us to read it. And then it pushes against our 
uh, assumptions when it comes to the implications of equality, that that therefore erases all distinctions or something like that. And so I pray that you would help us to embrace this. I pray that you would uh, give us grace in the church, that we might flourish with these relationships of authority and submission in ways that actually correspond to the gospel, the way that your son exercises his authority, not in a belittling, abusive way, but in a way that actually causes those whom he leads to flourish. And so I pray that you'd help us to, um, to actually exemplify that spirit as well. I pray these things because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name. Amen.